A king should come from a line of warriors, conquerors, and mighty men. But the family of that humble king in a manger was anything but heroic. Tamar was an abused widow. Rahab, a foreign sinner. Ruth, a destitute outsider. Bathsheba, an exploited wife. Yet God was not ashamed of them. He cherished these scandalous women. And at the end of this long line unfit for a king, he chose Mary. God sent his son into the world, born of a woman ordinary and unremarkable, born into a world where he continues to choose the misfits and sinners and outsiders, just like the matriarchs of Christmas. Hills. Good morning, Pod Creation. Good to see all you this morning, and good to know that all you guys are tuning in. It finally feels like Minnesota here today, doesn't it? Our uh, pristine, beautiful, super idealistic fall has come to an abrupt end. And all the snowbirds, we got a lot of snowbirds, all you guys down there in Arizona who go down there from November to, to April, you're going, yes! It finally paid off. All right, so we're starting this new series here, Matriarchs of Christmas, and that was just such a good you know, intro bumper there. And what do you think about this? We got so many creative people, isn't that incredible? And changes colors, and such a good backdrop, man. Looking at that, you can't help but get into the Christmas spirit. So we're starting this series called The Matriarchs of uh, Christmas, because we're going to be looking at the five women that are in Matthew's genealogy. Um, and today we're going to be looking at, the, the first of these is Tamar, a very interesting woman. Um, and, and so the, the title of this message is Good News for Tamar. Because Christmas is good news for Tamar. And for all the Tamars of the world, you'll see what I mean here in a little bit. Um, I want to read just a few uh, verses from the genealogy. I, I wish I could read the whole thing to push back on this kind of tendency that we Westerners have uh, of, of skipping over the genealogies in the Bible. This is be, so-and-so begot, so-and-so begot, so-and-so begot, so-and-so. It's like boring. So we skip over that. And I want to push back on that, but instead I'm going to reinforce that because I'm going to only read a couple of verses as though the rest wasn't important. But I, I have to save time because I want to read the whole Tamar story. It's such a fascinating story, but you've got to look at it as a whole block. So here's the first couple of verses of uh, Matthew's genealogy says, an account of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Note there that son of just means descendant of. It doesn't mean literal son of. It just means descendant of. Uh, in ancient genealogies, you could skip generations, and, and that was fine. You just had to note the most noteworthy people. So Matthew introduces his genealogy by skipping a couple generations, but then he fills it in. He says, Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob. And Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. These are the uh, famous 12 uh, sons of Jacob. Um, and Judah was the eldest of them. Uh, and, and Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. <coughs> An interesting point there. Now that's where she's mentioned. And Perez was the father of Hezron. And then you skip ahead uh, 12 verses and you've come to the end. It says, and Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, was called the Messiah. Have uh, any of you done any of those DNA tests that they have out now? Uh, Ancestry.com and all those stuff. Some of you have, have done so. I read that those uh, DNA tests, and there's a number of them out there now, CRI genetics and uh, Ancestry.DNA and a number of them. Um, but they've doubled in sales over the last five, every year they've doubled over the last five years. It's, it's really catching on. Um, and it, it's, uh, I think it's because there's a sense, we all have a sense that who we are today is uh, influenced by, to some degree term, determined by, uh, our ancestors. What, what, who they were and what they did informs who we are. I've shared here before uh, the sad, sad story of the Boyds, how we were in, at one point, nobility in Scotland. Yes, we were. Uh, off the island of Butte, that's where Boyd comes from. And uh, we were keepers of the palace, which is not feudal lords, but we're it's one notch down. We didn't get the big castles, but we still had castles. 
And then one of my moron ancestors in the 11th century kidnapped the feudal lord's daughter and declared war, and we lost and got kicked out of Scotland and migrated to Ireland and then migrated to France and England, and we were scoundrels. Been scoundrels ever since. But we could have been contenders. We, I, I, I could have been somebody. You know, if it wasn't for that moron ancestor, I could be wearing kilts right now instead of these hot pants. <laughs> but what an advantage that would be. Playing a bagpipe. Arr. Could be living in a castle. Instead, born lower middle class and just a nobody. I could have been a contender, though. But see, if it wasn't for that ancestor, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd be living a different kind of life. And that's true for all of us. The decisions that were made in the past affect where, where we're born, when we're born, and all the rest of the things of, of, of our life. Um, I did learn, however, when I took this DNA test, that um, I knew I was mostly Scottish and Irish with a little bit of French and a little bit of uh, English in there. I didn't know that I'm 9% Portuguese. Yeah, there you go. That's why I tan so well. Okay, so there, there, there's that. But see, uh, while we're kind of getting into this uh, ancestry stuff, ancient people were far more into their ancestors than we ever dream of being. Uh, these are folks who would uh, uh, sit around and didn't have the kind of entertainment that we have today. They would just tell stories around the campfire, and the stories they would tell were usually stories of their ancestry. Uh, who are we? Uh, it was a way of, uh, of, 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 of just telling a story of, of this is us. And these ge genealogies, every name in the genealogy represents a story. And their story is part of our story. This is the ancient mindset. Who they were is part of who we are. Who we are is part of who they are. And so you tell these stories as reminders of, 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 of your identity. Uh, they weren't meant to be exhaustive, these ancient genealogies. As I just mentioned, they could skip generations. Son of or begat just means a descendant of, and you could skip generations. You, 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 you only mentioned the ones who were important to mention. These are the, uh, the, the, uh, the hall of fame of our ancestry. Not necessarily that these are all upstanding characters, but these are the important things happened here that inform who we are. And so they weren't at all meant to be exhaustive, which is why um, it's really misguided, to say the least, to try to date when Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden by reading back the, the, the genealogies let alone when the earth was created, as some have tried to do in the past. Uh, you're, you're, you're misunderstanding the nature of genealogy, ancient genealogies, if you read it that way. They weren't interested in just the, the facts of, of who our ancestors were. It's, it's the story of who our ancestors were, and it's only the important folks who get included in this. So Matthew skips a couple generations in order to package his genealogy in three groups of 14. Three different groups based on different periods in history. And scholars debate why he did it that way. I think it was just a memory device because very few people could read in this, in, in, at, at this time. And so it was all passed down through oral tradition. And this is, it's easier to remember if you have three groups of 14 than if it's just all random. Be that as it may, the point is that it's not exhaustive. It's just the important folks. And because it's just the important folks, almost exclusively in the ancient world, it was always males. Because in the ancient world... And this is still true for much of the world today. It's still true to some degree of our culture today. Uh, but in the ancient world especially, uh, the important folks were the males. Men were deemed as being intrinsically more important than women. In fact, in the ancient world, women were regarded as being less than fully human. Aristotle uh, expresses kind of the sentiment of the time in the 3rd century, 4th century BC, when he, he, he defines a woman as a deformed male. Uh, and that was prevalent. Galen, who's another ancient philosopher, said the same thing. Uh, the normal for, 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 you, for, for humanity is to, to have a penis. And if you don't have that, there's something defective with you. This is what they say. Now, it's a fortunate mistake of nature, because otherwise we couldn't pass on, you know, we couldn't uh, obviously re reproduce. But nonetheless, women are, there's something defective about them. They're subhuman. They were regarded as being uh, uh, irrational and too emotional, childish. They always needed male supervision. And so women were regarded as, as the property of males, first of your father and then of your husband uh, and the family that you marry into. Uh, they were bought and sold like property. They had no rights of their own, none. Uh, all, decision, all important decision-making was done by males. The whole society was set up to make women dependent on males, completely dependent on males. When adultery happened or when a, a rape happened, 
it was criminal, but not because you violated the woman's worth, but because you, you violated a man's property. That's why it says in the Old Testament, which reflects this view uh, very much, it, uh, that, that you should not covet your neighbor's wife. Nothing about a woman uh, wife coveting a neighbor's husband. Uh, it's only the men who get to do this. But you, but you don't covet a neighbor's wife because that's his property. He owns that. He had to pay for her. That's what the dowry was all about. He had to buy her, and you don't have the right to violate that. So you don't find any women in ancient genealogies, and yet here in Matthew's genealogy, we have five. And that's amazing. And that already tells you something about the meaning of the coming of Jesus. Every one of these stories in Matthew's genealogy tells a story about Jesus, ultimately. Uh, something about the coming of Jesus is wrapped up in these stories. And the fact that you have five women in, in Matthew's genealogy already tells you that uh, the coming of Jesus, which is the meaning of Christmas, has a lot to do with changing the status of women in this world. Somebody say amen. Um, it's all about that. This is unprecedented. It's, 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 it's spectacular. Uh, these women are part of, of the story of Jesus. This is Jesus's, this is us. Okay, the genealogies are a way of saying, this is us. This is who we are. And, 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 and so by Matthew, including these five women, it's part of who Jesus is. It's part of the mission that he has. It's part of the story that he brings. And so the first one he mentions is Tamar. And uh, I want to read this story of Tamar. Um, I should first set it up this way. The story happens in Genesis 38. We're going to read the whole chapter, and I'll just kind of put in comments as I go along. But you need to know that in chapter 37, the chapter before this one, uh, it's a story about Judah. And uh, Judah, you just got to know, was something of a scoundrel. Yeah, he's a hero. He's one of the 12 uh, of patriarchs of, uh, the, the, of, of Christmas, of the Jewish uh, tribe. And uh, in fact, the 12 tribes of Israel were named after these 12 brothers, one of them being Judah. So yeah, he's all that, but he's also a scoundrel. In uh, chapter 37, he is the ringleader among his brothers to try to, he wants to kill his brother Joseph. Uh, Joseph was Jacob's favorite son and gave him that technicolor raincoat or that, 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 that raincoat, uh, <laughs> raincoat, a little umbrella. No, that, 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 that multicolored coat, it was really pretty. And all of his brothers were jealous of that. So Judah wants to kill him. Uh, Reuben talks him out of that and says, no, nah, that's too much. We'll, we'll just sell him into slavery. So they sell him into sell him to the Midianites, and that's how he makes his way down to Egypt. But uh, this guy is, is, is a scoundrel. You just got to know that going into this. And, and this chapter doesn't do him any compliments uh, to improve that perception at all. So here's, here, here's how it goes. It says, about that time, shortly after he sold Joseph into slavery, Judah separated from his brothers and went to stay with a man in Adlam, named Hira. While there, Judah met the daughter of a Canaanite named Shua. He married her, and they went to bed, and she became pregnant and had a son named Ur. Now just notice this, that the author mentions the guy that, that, that Judah went to, uh, this Hira. Men get mentioned here, but we never learn the name of his wife. We know who her father is, Shua, but we don't know who she is. And that's because Shua is a male and therefore worth mentioning, but uh, the women are not. She got pregnant again and had a son named Onan. And then she still had another son and she named this one Shelah. They were living in Kezeb when she had, when, when she had him. Judah got a wife for Ur, Er, 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 whatever. I mean, how, how can you go wrong if you name your son Er? <laughs> <laughs> Her name was Tamar. Finally, a woman gets mentioned. But Judah's firstborn heir grievously offended God, and God took his life. Uh, just a little note here. Um, you know, in Hebrews 1, it tells us that in the past, up leading up to Christ, they got glimpses of the truth. Uh, and if you're only getting glimpses of the truth, it means that you're in a mostly clouded day. And so the perception, their understanding of God in the Old Testament was pretty cloudy. I personally, and this is my opinion, this isn't the doctrine of Woodland Hills or anything like that, but uh, I think when we come upon passages that depict God smiting someone dead, uh, we're seeing a shadowy conception of God because uh, so far as I can see, what Jesus reveals about God is that he doesn't go around smiting people dead. We learn that God, when he has to bring judgment, he does it by letting people suffer the consequences of their, 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 their decisions. So I don't doubt at all that, that, that whatever Er did grieved God, but the way that he died, I, I think, is, is here depicted in a shadowy way. But Er dies. 
So Judah told Onan, go and sleep with your brother's widow. It's the duty of the brother-in-law to keep your brother's line alive. But Onan knew that the child wouldn't be his. So whenever he slept with his brother's widow, Tamar, he spilled his semen on the ground so he wouldn't produce a child for his brother. God was much offended by what he did and also took his life. Merry Christmas, everybody. <laughs> Have yourself. So here's what's going on here. Uh, <laughs> I bet you never heard of, thought you'd be hearing about this on Christmas. The, uh, what's going on here is there's a, a, a law. It's called a Leverite law. I didn't come in until later on. But we learned that, that uh, a lot of the things we find in the Old Testament were uh, kind of, they adopted a lot of the culture or customs of the time. Uh, and, and, and so it, it, it's, it's clear that this Leverite law, even before it became official, was already in place here in Canaan uh, at this time. And the law stipulated that if a, a uh, brother marries a, a woman and then he dies, the next oldest who is available has to, has to marry her. It's his familial duty. And there's several reasons for this. Uh, one is for the protection of the, the, the wife. Uh, when the wife marries into a family, the family now, she's released, the father is released from her uh, uh, obligation, uh, and, and now she belongs to this family. And uh, uh, so they have to provide for her, if they can, uh, a husband. Because the worst place to be in the ancient world is to be a woman without, without any association with a man, whether a father or, or, or a husband. Uh, it's not like they have a lot of job opportunities there. The whole culture, as I said, is, is, is created to make women dependent. To be without a, a husband uh, or a, have a father taking care of you uh, is to be out on your own. And that means that you're either going to have to beg for a living or you turn to prostitution. Those are about your only options. And so, so here she is. She's a, if you're not the property of one man, well, then you become the property of all men who want to use you. That's kind of how the thing worked. Um, the more fundamental reason for this Leverite law was not about the widow at all. It was about the brother. And as a way of honoring the brother, uh, you're, you, you want his, his line to carry on. So when the, the second brother would marry the wife, the firstborn son would be legally the heir of the brother that died, which means he would get all the inheritance. The firstborn got all the inheritance. Onan clearly doesn't want to do that. He wants the inheritance. His older brother, heir, died. And so Onan wants to get this. And so he doesn't want to have a son uh, to rob him of this inheritance. And that's why he won't impregnate Tamar. It's clear he has no conscience against using Tamar for pleasurable purposes because he has sex with her, but he pulls out at the last minute. And what that means is that, I know it's not your normal Christmas sermon, but. But see, what that means is that um, Onan's sin here wasn't a, a, a sexual sin. Um, as I was taught in fifth grade catechism class, you don't want to be guilty of the sin of onanism. onanism. You ever heard that word? It's a standard for the M word. Uh, you don't want to spill your seed because God will strike you dead. Or if he won't strike you dead, well then maybe you'll get warts on your hands or you'll go blind or have mental incapacity or whatever. How many adolescent boys... Uh, we're terrorized by this passage. The injustice here isn't a sexual sin at all. It, 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 his sin is, is, is against his brother. He's dishonoring his brother. He's dishonoring the family. He's breaking this law. And he's totally disregarding Tamar. Because her only in on this is to provide a son uh, for, for this family. That's what, in the ancient, that, that's, that was her main job. And he's denying her of that. Um, and, and so it's, it's, a, it's, it's a gross injustice, but it wasn't sexual in nature. So then we read this. So after Onan died, Judah stepped in and told his daughter-in-law, Tamar, live as a widow at home with your father until my son, Sheila, grows up. Live as a widow. That means you have to live in mourning. You have to put on widow's garb to tell everyone that you're not available. Close off all other opportunities for, for, for this lady. He was worried that Sheila would also end up dead just like his brothers. So Tamar went to live with her father. So Judah here blames the woman, and that's a very customary thing to do. There's always a woman to blame behind everything that's wrong in this universe. And so he thinks that Judah, that, that uh, uh, his, his, Tamar is something of a black widow. Whether she's killing him directly or whether she's, you know, just bad luck or whatever, he's afraid that if he, if he gives Sheila to, to Tamar, that, that Sheila will, will end up dead. 
I'm sure that Tamar could have offered the information about what Onan was doing, uh, but uh, um, um, and that, that brought, brought, brought about his d- demise, but no one's going to believe a woman. Not only that, but from, from Judah's perspective, she's not only a black widow, but she's an infertile black widow. She's been married twice, and she hasn't brought any children in this world. And I'm sure Tamar could have told him the story about how that happened, but who's to believe a woman? And, and so he doesn't want to uh, uh, give Sheila in marriage to Tamar. But on the other hand, he doesn't want to, that would be breaking of the Levite law. And so that would bring dishonor on his family. He doesn't want to bring dishonor on his family. He doesn't want to bring shame on himself. And so he, he, he gets out of this by lying to Tamar. He says, I, I, you'll have Sheila when he grows up, however long that would be. Uh, but until then, go back to your father. Go back to your home. Which itself is already a violation of their fa- family obligation because the father's no longer responsible for her. Uh, he is. But he's saying, you go back home and, 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 and put on your widow garb and just stay put for, for however long until I say otherwise. Uh, that already is an injustice being done to her. What's really going on, I think, is that Tamara, or that, that Judah just wants her out of sight and out of mind. And I think he's buying time. If we give this thing four or five years, well, then, then, then when, when I marry Sheila off to some other woman who's more fertile and less lethal, well, then it won't, won't be as much of a scandal. Out of sight, out of mind. So, so for several years, uh, Sheila, Sheila grows, and, uh, or, and, and, and meanwhile, uh, Tamar has to wait on the sidelines, not available for anybody. All this time, uh, Judah is able to be scouting for a, a fruitful and non-lethal wife for his son, while Tamar is in prison. Uh, she's locked away. She has to wear this widow's garb and not available to anything. Meanwhile, her biological clock is ticking. And she's on her way to, unless her father was independently wealthy, which the text gives no indication of, uh, that she's on her way to being, uh, being put on, on, on the streets. So um, it seems like Judah has as little regard for Tamar's welfare as his son Onan had. And then we read this. Time passed. Judah's wife, Shua's daughter, we still don't know her name, she died. And when the time of mourning was over... Judah with his friend Hira and Adlam went to Timnah for the sheep shearing. Note here that Judah, uh, his, his time of mourning, however long that was, it came to an end. Seems like quite a speedy end. Done with that. Meanwhile, poor Tamar has been mourning this whole time and unavailable for anybody this, this, this whole time. So they, 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 he goes for the sheep shearing. This is, sheep shearing was the payday for shepherds. This is when you go to the market and you... you, you Get all the wool from your sheep and you sell it and it's, it's, it's the big payday. So Tamar uh, was told that, um, moving on to the passage, it says, Tamar was told, your father-in-law has gone to Timnah to shear his sheep. So Tamar took off her widow's clothes, got out of prison, put on a veil to disguise herself, and sat at the entrance of Enam, which is on the road to Timnah. She realized by now that even though Sheila was grown up, she wasn't going to be married to him. Judah had been lying to her this whole time. Judah saw her and assumed she was a prostitute since she had a veil over her face. So he left the road and went over to her. And he said, let me sleep with you. Nice foreplay there, Judah. (laughs) Smooth talker, this one. He had no idea that she was his daughter-in-law. See, so at some point... Tamar sees that Judah is as ruthless as she perhaps had feared all along. And so now, either she's going to do something, or she's going to find herself, she realizes, out on the street, begging or turning to prostitution just to survive. So this lady who, all of her life, like all the women of the time, had no decision-making power, now she's got to make some really radical decisions. So she decides, she comes up with a plan. And she takes off her widow garb and puts on prostitution garb, prostitution dressing, which in those days apparently included wearing a veil over your face. And apparently you wore the veil over your face even while you're doing your transaction, um, which is kind of strange, I guess. But then again, you've got to remember that back in these times, they didn't have toothpaste or toothbrushes or, 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 or dental floss or anything like that. In fact, it was pretty, in, in, in the uh, Song of Solomon, he, he Talks, the author talks about this beautiful uh, bride of his because uh, she's got all of her teeth, which apparently was ex- very exceptional in those days. Uh, to make it to th- the age of 30 with all your teeth is, is saying something. So maybe having a veil over her face was really a positive thing back then. 
Uh, no kissing allowed, and for the, that they could be thankful. So she, she, put, she puts on this veil and goes and stands at the place. She learns where they're going to have this sheep shearing thing going on. She stands at the crossroads where everyone has to pass to get there. And um, she's dressed like a, a prostitute. You got to wonder, how did Tamar know that Judah would find that irresistible? I mean, all these folks passing by, going to sheep shearing. How did she know that Judah would be the one that couldn't, find, couldn't resist this? And the only possible answer to this is that this is what Judah did. This is, this is kind of normal for him. In fact, throughout this passage, we'll see here shortly, no one is all, at all surprised or upset or anything that Judah goes to a prostitute. That's considered just sort of what guys do. So she, she knew what, 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 what uh, Judah was up to. And in that light, you can see what Tamar's doing is using Judah's weakness, his, his, his propensity towards pro- prostitutes, she's using that against him to outwit him, to outsmart him. So then we read, she said, well, what will you pay me? And he says, I'll send you, he said, a kid goat from the flock. And she said, not unless you give me a pledge until you send it. I'm not going to take your word for it. Smart lady. So what would you want in the way of a pledge? Judah says. And she says, I want your personal seal and cord and the staff you carry. He handed them over to her and slept with her, and she got pregnant, and she then left and went home. She removed her veil and put her widow's uh, clothes back on. The seal and cord, uh, it's sort of like an insignia ring. It was a, uh, think of it today as maybe your, your driver's license. It's a way of identifying you. And Judah would have this going to the sheep shearing thing because this authorizes, this is your, your authorization of something. It's your pledge. Uh, it's your seal. It's your personal identification thing. And so you use it in all business transactions. If you say, I'm going to pay you so much for this, you know the person's good for it if they have their insignia uh, imprinted on this. So the seal in court is his identification marker. His personal staff is, is also identifies him. And that's really smart for Tamar to get because... There's no possible way. I mean, whoever has this, he, they got it from Judah. So, so the, it's an unmistakable identification marker. It also suggests that Tamar must have been something of a catch, even with a veil over her face, because it's crazy that he would give that away to her as a pledge. I mean, that was really a reckless thing to do. Here, have my credit card. Um, uh, he must have wanted this pretty badly. I mean, to offer her a, a goat is already a pretty good payment because that's a, a sustainable resource. But then to give this pledge is just crazy and, 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 and radical. So that says, where am I here? Uh, hang on. I lost my verse. Where did my verse go? Uh, here it is. Hang on. Talks amongst yourself. Oh, here it goes. So then... Judah sent the kid goat by, by his friend from Adlam to cover the pledge from the woman. But he, he couldn't find her. So he asked the men of that place, where's the prostitute that used to sit here by the road near Enam? Uh, they said, there's never been a prostitute here. What are you talking about? So he went back to Judah and said, I couldn't find her. The men there said, there's never been a prostitute there. So Judah says, well, then let her have it. Uh, if, if we keep looking, everyone will be poking fun at us. Judah is always concerned about saving face. And, and he's, he's not upset that people know that he slept with a prostitute. That doesn't seem to be anything extraordinary. But he's, he'd be upset if, if, he knew he got, if people knew that he got outwitted by a prostitute, that would bring shame on him. So it's like, let's keep this quiet. I'll, I'll, I'll just get a new one. Just let, let, let her have that. Uh, he says, I kept my part of the bargain. Oh, what a righteous guy. I sent the kid goat, but you couldn't find her. Three months or so later, Judah was told, Your daughter-in-law has been playing the whore, and now she's pregnant. And Judah yelled out, get her out here. Burn her up. Wow. So three months pass, and and Tamar begins to show. And for all anyone knows, this could have been a one-time thing, but it's kind of interesting that as soon as she gets pregnant, uh, everyone is accusing her, it's all the men, of being a whore, of being a prostitute. She must be sleeping around a lot. Look, Look what happened. And, and uh, Judah then says, well, burn her alive. And he has the right, apparently, in this culture to do that because she is his property, even though he's not taking responsibility for her. The hypocrisy here is ast- it's, 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 it's astounding. Here Judah is, he sleeps with prostitutes whenever he wants to, but as soon as his property appears to violate 
custom of the time, the law of the time, uh, of, of, of staying this widow as he commanded, as soon as, as, soon as that, it appears that she's done that, he wants her burned alive for being a prostitute, the kind of prostitute that he sleeps with all the time, not knowing yet that he's the one who impregnated her. Uh, the hypocrisy is outstanding. In fact, it's even worse than that because, you know, in the Old Testament, uh, prostitutes were usually stoned to death. That was the punishment for being a prostitute. Unless you were the daughter of a holy man. If, 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 if a priest had a daughter and that daughter turned to prostitution, then she was to be burned alive. Now that was in the Old Testament. The Old Testament hasn't been written yet. But as I said earlier, the Old Testament laws reflect a lot of the, the culture of, of the time and the time leading up to the writing of the Old Testament. And so it seems here that Judah is not only being a hypocrite for being outraged that his daughter-in-law had sex with somebody other than the son that he has pledged to her but has no intention of giving to her, but he's positioning himself here as a holy man. He's so righteous that she deserves the worst kind of execution imaginable, which is being burned alive. Hypocrisy is outstanding. What's really going on here, I think, is that Judah has finally caught a break, he thinks. Uh, this is a way to get rid of Tamar. And now he'll be free to marry Sheila off to whoever without any kind of a scandal. Just burn her alive. The ruthlessness and the hypocrisy of Judah is just, he has as little regard for her as Onan had. Just toss her aside. But Tamar is 10 steps ahead of everybody. So then we read this. As they brought her out, they brought Tamar out, and they were going to bring her to her father-in-law to be executed. She sent a message ahead to her father-in-law. She says, well, if you must know, I'm pregnant by the man who owns these things, this seal and cord and this staff. Um, identify them, please. Who is the owner of the seal and cord and the staff? And Judah is here busted. Just, there's no way out of this. Uh, he's caught. So Judah, sa Judah saw they were his. So he says, she's in the right and I'm in the wrong. I wouldn't let her marry my son, Shelah. And he never slept with her again. So he comes clean here. He confesses, but it's not like to his credit, because what else was he going to do? He was, he was caught. It's kind of amazing that while, while Tamar was just about to be burned alive for being an alleged prostitute on his accusation, when he comes clean and confesses that this is all on him and this is all his fault, there's no consequences for him. Now, Tamar is now under his protection, so she's not going to be executed, but Judah... There's no consequences. And that's how things worked in the ancient world. Uh, throughout history, there's always been a double standard on sexual matters when it comes to men and women. And that goes with us to this day. You know, the, the, the guy who sleeps around is a stud, but the girl who sleeps around is called something much less complimentary. Um, it, it was, it's, it's, the injustice of it all was, was, was just grotesque. And, um, and it's how it's been throughout history. So... Judah marries Tamar as it's his obligation. Having had sex with her, he's supposed to marry her. And, uh, but he never has sex with her again. And I, for one, can't imagine Tamar being disappointed with that fact. <laughs> and then we read, when her time came to give birth, it turned out that there were twins in her, in her womb. So she's double blessed. As she was giving birth, one put out his hand. The midwife tied a red, th a red thread on his hand saying, this one came first. But then he pulled it back, the kid pulled it back, and his brother came out first. So she said, oh, a breakout, like you usually do. So she named him Perez, which means breakout, and then his brother came out with a red thread on his hand, and they named him Zira, which means bright. And if you don't get that, fine, because I don't either. Uh, customs were very different back then, so just leave that for what it is. The bottom line is that by giving birth to these twins, she was, in the ancient world, was seen as being just doubly blessed. Have, 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 have two, two sons here. And Prez ends up being the, the, descendant, the ancestor whom Jesus ultimately descends from. Now, the way this story is usually told uh, is that, at least this is how I've always heard it and I've always understood it um, up until very recently. <clears throat> but that the outstanding point of the story was that uh, Tamar seduced her father-in-law. And... and the point of him, Tamar being included in the genealogy was to say that uh, Jesus came to save sinners and Jesus is not afraid of calling this woman who, is, who seduced her own father-in-law 
uh, he's not afraid of calling her friend. This is my family. This is us. And you often pointed out that Tamara was in a desperate situation. You know, she had very few options, actually no options. But still there's a hint of immorality there. She's a seductionist. And, um, and so Jesus came to include her because he includes sinners. And it's true that Jesus calls uh, sinners family. That, that, that's true. But I think we're focusing on the wrong sinner. The, the, the sinful part of this passage is not what Tamar did. As, as, as the passage presents it, Tamar, this is the only option she had. Uh, the, the story says nothing disparaging her about her at all. In fact, the way the story plays out, it's, read it as it's originally written, is Tamar is kind of applauded for being so clever. She outwitted uh, Judah, and they kind of celebrate her, 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 her cleverness. Now, I'm not holding up what she did as a morally exemplary behavior, but whatever you find troublesome about Tamar's behavior, it's nothing compared to the sinful stuff that was done to her. I mean, the, the, the sinfulness of this passage is... Um, it's about this culture that would give all the rights to a man and none to a woman. What's really sinful here is the way this culture dehumanized women, uh, denied their being made in the image of God, denied that they were fully human, denied their equality, treated them like property. What's truly grotesque here is any, any kind of cultural system that would reduce women down to uh, having one purpose, and that's to either satisfy a man and or to have children. That was it. Uh, that's the, the sin that, that Jesus came to die for and, and to reverse. And against that backdrop of this patriarchal, misogynistic, sexist brutality that's inflicted on Tamar, against that background, Tamar looks like a hero. I mean, she is the woman that outwitted the system. Uh, in a system that was all, all the cards were stacked against her, she's found a way to turn the injustice of that system, the injustice of Judah and Onan, back on them. Uh, she exposed the shamefulness of what was being done here. This woman who had had no choice all of her life makes this huge decision. It's a radical one. It's a risky one. But she goes out there, and she subverts the system. <laughs> uh, and, and, see, and, and both Judah and Tamar are in this genealogy for a reason. You know, it, it's like Matthew. He, he, no one's surprised that he would mention Judah. Of course he'd mention Judah because he's one of the 12 patriarchs. He's one of the heroes. But it's like Matthew saying, well, if we're going to talk, if, if we're going to remember, as we tell these stories, if we're going to remember the story of Judah, we've got to remember Tamar. And he names her. Tamar gets a name, which we see was not common in the ancient world. She's named. In fact, she's named in the genealogy that leads to, to, to uh, Jesus. And in, in the stories to put together, Judah is the scoundrel here. And Tamar is the clever person who outwitted the system, who subverted an unjust system. And uh, uh, both belong in the genealogy of Jesus because Jesus did come to save sinners, to be a friend of sinners, to redeem sinners. But more specifically, Jesus came to subvert unjust systems. More specifically still, he came to subvert the unjust system that prioritizes men over women, says men are important, women are not. Men get names, women do not. Men get justice, but women do not. Men are human beings, but women are not. He came to subvert all of that, reverse it, and uh, restore things to the way God wanted it, because that's not at all what God had intended. In the beginning, God made men and women, and they together were in the image of God, equally in the image of God. And they're to function as a partnership. They're supposed to rule over the earth and the animal kingdom, but not rule over one another. All ruling over others, all tyrannizing over others, subjugating others, that is all a result of the fall. None of it is part of God's design. So Jesus comes to end the works of the devil, it says in 1 John 3, 8, to, to get rid of the works of the enemy. And this is one of the works of the enemy. Misogyny is a work of the enemy, amen? Sexism, patriarchalism is a work of the enemy, and Jesus comes to subvert all of that. And that is a central part of the meaning of Christmas. That's a central part of the reason why Jesus came in the first place. It's to subvert the world's systems, to turn injustice on its head, and come to set things right. Jesus comes to set women free from the oppression of patriarchalism, but also to set men free from the uh, tyranny of patriarchalism. Because any system that, that, that jaundices your eyes so that you cannot see the humanity of another, that means that you're in bondage. Freedom is being able to see the beauty and the humanity and the equality of others. And if you can't see that, there's something damaged with your perception. And Jesus comes to heal us from all of that. Praise God. Uh, Paul tells, and, and, and so you find this, Jesus coming to, to reverse this, this, the status of women. You find this throughout the New Testament. 
uh, in the Gospels, it's all over the place. You know, Jesus, uh, he, he, he goes to Samaria when most Jews would go around it. And he goes there on purpose because he wants to meet this woman at the well, a Samaritan woman. Jews weren't supposed to talk to Samaritans. But here Jesus, and men were supposed to talk to women uh, out, out in public. Um, that was a social taboo, but Jesus goes out of his way to break these taboos. And he treats this woman with dignity and respect. And when he finally reveals that he knows everything about her, that he knows that she's had five husbands and is now sleeping with somebody who's not her husband, which in the, you know, that'd be kind of surprising even today, but in the ancient world, in the ancient Jewish world, that is like wild crazy. But he brings this up not to condemn her, but to say, I've got water. You, you, you've been going through these marriages because you're hungry, you're thirsty, but I've got what you're thirsty for. I, I want to offer you life. And so she runs back to her town with joy, announcing to all of her town, townsfolk, I met a man who knew everything about me, and it's good news. Now, you would think that meeting a man who knew everything about her, especially a Jewish man who knew everything about her, would be the worst news in the world. And if she had met a Pharisee, it would have been really bad news because he would have condemned her. But Jesus doesn't condemn her. Jesus sees the need behind her behavior and her decisions and offers to meet that need. The role of women in the ministry of Jesus is just unprecedented in the ancient world. And then we find in the letters of Paul, he announces in Ephesians 2 that there's one new humanity when Jesus died on the cross. He creates one new human race. Um, a race in which there's no walls of division. All walls, all dividing marks have been torn down. All hierarchies have been dismantled. All, all power moves are, are, are torn down in this one new humanity. And, and so Paul can say that in Christ, when you're in Christ, when your faith is in him, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither male nor female, neither slave nor free. All the categories that humans use to create our hierarchies, our social structures, privileging some over others, all of those are to be dismantled in the kingdom of God. And what it's all saying is that where God reigns, where God reigns, uh, his order that he originally created will be manifested. Where God reigns, women will no longer be under the, the foot of men. Where God reigns, human beings will see each other as human beings. Where God reigns, uh, there, there's not going to be this division according to gender or according to race or according to ability or according to social class. All the things that the world invests so much significance in, who are you, where do you rate, you know, all that, are to be done away with, and we're simply be humans. We still are men and women, obviously. We still are white or black, and whatever particulars you bring to it. But see, in Christ, those things are no longer to be things that divide us, let alone prioritize some over others, but to be celebrated as a beautiful, the beautiful diversity by which God's glory is being refracted throughout the cosmos, praise God. Uh, all under the reign of God, hallelujah. So Christmas is meant to be, it's, Christmas is all about uh, being good news to Tamar uh, and the Tamars of this world. Um, it's all about subverting the systems that have kept Tamars in, 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 on the sidelines and subjugated. It's all about reversing the course of things where certain half the population isn't allowed to make any decisions on their own. Tamar's a hero for making a decision on her own, even though it was radical. And that's held up, but Jesus' coming is to set her free. So in the, in, the, in the early church, one of the things that they were known for, one of the ways that they were scandalous in their culture was, had to do with their radical egalitarianism. Um, in the perception of ordinary Romans, Christians, Christian men were effeminate. Uh, the Christian movement was seen as taking away the authority of the man. It was seen as being this, this effeminate thing, which means that it's, in, 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 to the ordinary Roman, it's a weak thing. It was scandalous. Unfortunately, that radical vision didn't even last a century. By the time we get to the second century, you already find the misogyny of the surrounding cultural culture beginning to make inroads on Christian thinking. And uh, if you ever want to get in a really bad mood, uh, just Google misogynist quotes church fathers. Uh, it, it, I wanted to read these to you, but I just don't have time. Uh, but it's probably good because they're pretty upsetting. The, the same old theory about... Starting with Augustine, you have uh, a readaptation of Aristotle's theory that women are deformed men. And Aquinas repeats that. It gets repeated throughout church history. And, and so you, you don't see hardly any of the beauty of this radical egalitarian kingdom that Jesus came to inaugurate. You see very little of that as it applies to women throughout all of church history. And sadly, even to this day, while things have changed in Western culture significantly for women, praise God for that, you still have large blocks of the church that, that are continuing on this tradition where women 
aren't given any authority. They're, they're not allowed to be on boards. They, they, they don't have any decision-making capacity. They're still treated as children. Men will make all the responsible decisions here because we're the rational ones. Uh, they're not allowed to teach a man. They're not allowed to have authority over man in any way. They're, 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 they're not allowed to preach. They're not allowed to, certainly not allowed to be senior pastors. And it's crazy because these, these, these groups, they understand that like the slavery of the Old Testament, that was something that we're supposed to grow out of. That's a first century cultural context thing, even though the New Testament doesn't overtly condemn it. Uh, but they understand that. But they don't get that the same thing applies to women. Despite the fact that to be a woman in the ancient world was a form of being a slave. <laughs> you, you, you were, well, what, what else would you call a person who's owned by somebody else? I'll just close by saying this. I am so thankful I belong to a, a community of people who, who, who celebrate the equality of men and women and the equality of all people. I'm so thankful I belong to a community that, that is, is one of our main missions has been to empower women to be all that God created you to be. How it must grieve the heart of God. If I looked at one of my daughters and I saw all this potential that they had, but they weren't allowed to live it out because they were female, it would break my heart. How must break Abba Father's heart to have all of his, so many of his, his precious daughters have gifted in all these areas, but the cultural circumstances and the beliefs of particular segments of the church won't allow them to operate in those gifts. We're about empowering women to be all you can be. Wherever God calls you, do that. The qualifications for doing a ministry, any ministry, amen. The qualification is not whether you have a penis or not. What does that have to do? I, I never understood. What, what does that have to do with leadership? Oh, you want to be a preacher? Well, what kind of sex organ do you have? It's just so... And the idea that Galen, he's an ancient philosopher, he actually said, uh, women uh, are the result of uh, insufficient body heat to push out uh, their sexual organ. <laughs> what? Maybe men... Well, when I say men uh, are, the, the, are defective because we can't push out breasts, I mean, it's, it's so arbitrary and stupid. Where was I? So I was on Merry Christmas. That's where I was. Now, here's the thing, you guys. If, 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 if God calls you to be a housewife, women, then praise God. Be, be a housewife. There's nothing wrong with that. It's, it's a high, noble, wonderful calling. Just don't do it because there's no other opportunities for you. Do it because that's where you're called. Or if you want to be a secretary, that's wonder, wonderful. Be that. That's, that's, that's noble. But if God calls you to be an entrepreneur, a business entrepreneur, then be that. If God calls you to be the CEO of a company, well, then be that. If God calls you to be a pastor, then be that. If God calls you to be a preacher, then be that. If God calls you to be president, then go for it. Don't let any of the cultural stipulations pull you back. And see, that, that's the good news of Christmas is that it's a level the playing field. Where God reigns, the playing field is leveled. And so your qualifications for a ministry has nothing to do with whether you're a man or a woman or what race you are, social economics says. It has all to do with your giftings and your character and the confirmation of those around you. And if you have that, then absolutely go for it. I'll, I'll tell you this, and I, I mean this, this is not patronizing, this is not some kind of offhand compliment. I mean this from the depths of my heart. Woodland Hills would not be doing all the stuff that we're doing right now. Uh, if it wasn't for the women uh, that we've had here at, at, in the church. Um, we, we are the result of, in, in, uh, absolutely, absolutely. I'll toot her horn a little bit here. I, I, in particular, I want to mention Janice Rowlings. I, probably most of you don't even know what she looks like because she's never in public. She's behind the scenes. Uh, but she has just been, God's used her in a prophetic gift and her leadership gift and her ability to work with people in such marvelous ways. And... Uh, um, uh, it's, it's just been, it's just, this church would not be what it is. I, I, we've worked together for 26 years, me and Janice. And, and Janice, sometimes you've been a real pain in the butt. I will say that out loud. And that's not a surprise. I've, I've been a pain in the butt to you too. But we've learned to get along. And, and, and I, I know now today more acutely than I've ever known how much I need her and how much this church needs her. And it's a lot. It's a lot, you guys. Uh, I, honestly, give her a hand. She's an unsung hero of this. But it's not just Janice. Mary's here. Where would we be without Mary? We, we, we wouldn't be on time if it wasn't for Mary, I'll tell you that. And she's also been a pain in the butt, but I love her. And, and, and you got Oshida and Shauna and Emily, and, and, and we got half our board is, is, is women, Trin Tranberg and, and Jody and, and, and Marcia and with so many others. And, and, and then we have a ton of the women volunteers. Where would, we, where would we be without our, our women volunteers? And 
So all together, this church has just been so formed and fashioned and made by the women that we've had in. And on top of all that, I know, I know that we, if, if it wasn't for women being in a decision-making, influencing capacities here at the church, we would have made some major mistakes that we avoided because we had women looking at the thing. And if, if you, in the news now, I've noticed that exclusively male-led churches tend to run into to certain kinds of problems. And it's quite predictable. Uh, they make the same kind of mistakes, and they often implode. That hasn't happened here because we believe that women are called to be in leadership. Hallelujah. Amen. And that's good news of Christmas. That's good news for tomorrow. Praise God. Praise God. Men, watching on screen here, go ahead and do it even though we can't hear you, but in the congregation here, I would like all the men to right now give a round of applause for all of the women uh, of, of, of Woodland Hills Church. Say Merry Christmas. Amen. You can give them a standing ovation. That's, that's fine. Honestly. Thank you. Thank you, Mary. Thank you, Janice. Emily, Sean, all, we've been so blessed, so blessed. Amen. Okay, um, if you're here and you could use any kind of prayer, I want to encourage you to come up here and pray with the folks that are here. If you're online, uh, well, obviously you are online. If you'd like to pray right now in lifetime, uh, you can get on the website and, and get a prayer counselor there. Don't forget we have Musecast on Tuesdays at 4 o'clock, and we have gathering groups we encourage everyone to be a part of. And don't forget to support these ministries that, that are welcoming people from Afghanistan and the Congo uh, into the uh, United States. Uh, we are to be a people who care about the, the immigrant. And that's specifically mentioned about 24 times throughout the Bible. Care for the foreigner and the immigrant. And so this is the way that we give to Jesus. And, and so far as we give to the least of these, we are giving to Jesus. Father, thank you. Uh, for sending Jesus to come and subvert the systems of oppression and patriarchy and sexism and misogyny and every other kind of ism that dehumanizes people. Thank you for setting all of us free to see each other as full human beings as in the image of God. Uh, thank you, God, for gifting and empowering the Tamars of this world to have a voice, to have a name, to have a calling, to have a mission that's not just about serving men. Thank you for setting us free. Thank you for Christmas, which is all about the good news for all the tomorrows of the world, and all of us who are in bondage. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, Amen. God bless you guys. See you next week.